This past week, as I was doing the typical range of reading I'll do every week, I came across an article that I thought was totally fascinating. The premise of it was highlighting the final sermons that were preached by some of church history's most influential preachers, pastors, theologians. For instance, one was John Calvin, the great French reformer who spent most of his ministry in Geneva, a man who, in addition to writing the Institutes of the Christian Religion at a very early age, who addition wrote over 48 commentaries of the various books of the Bible, he preached on average 10 sermons every 14 days, making guys like me look like a total slouch. The records are somewhat fuzzy for Calvin, but it appears that around the time he died in 1564, he was preaching somewhere in the book of Joshua as he delivered his last sermon. Uh, Then there was John Flavel. John Flavel was an Oxford-educated pastor and preacher who lived in the 1600s. And in those days, there was this thing called the Act of Uniformity, where the English government was trying to dictate what pastors and preachers could preach on Sunday mornings. Flavel found himself in a problem because he wanted to preach the Bible, not what the English government wanted him to preach. Well, he was excommunicated, and as a result, he actually spent 41 years completely underground in his ministry. He preached in his own home, he preached in the houses of others, and he preached in the woods even. And he did so for four plus decades, preaching faithfully the word of God. Uh, His last sermon, Flavel's was, was on June 21st of 1691. His text was 1 Corinthians 10, 12. Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Jumping ahead a couple of centuries, we have Charles Spurgeon who is considered the prince of preachers. He's the most widely read, widely quoted preacher who ever lived. He was a preaching machine. He had a photographic memory. He had a towering intellect. He had an undeniable gift. His last sermon was preached on June 7th of 1891, and his text was 1 Samuel 30, 21 through 26, which explains the dividing of the spoils after David's conquer of the Amalekites. Then we come to Martin Lloyd-Jones, affectionately known as the doctor, because he was a high-ranking medical doctor in the English government at the time the Lord saved him and then set him apart for a gospel ministry. Lloyd-Jones was this little hunched-over Welshman. He was not flashy. He was not impressive. But what he did is he faithfully preached the word for 30-plus years at Westminster Chapel in London, where the word was very much out of season. And he did so line upon line, verse upon verse. Well, on May 18th of 1980, now a very old and very weakened man, weakened by the cancer that would eventually kill him, Lloyd-Jones preached from Joshua 4.6, which was about the memorial stones the Israelites had placed in the Jordan River. And the title of his sermon was, What Do These Stones Mean? So these were all faithful men, faithful men who faithfully preached the word, who, before they received their eternal reward, preached one last time, which got me thinking. Uh, Without being too morbid, without being too introspective and prophetic, and without being too presumptuous, seeing that I'm only about 100 sermons into my ministry here, this question's been rolling around in my mind all week since reading this article. If I were able to choose a final text to preach to everyone here, what would that text be? Especially if I'm going on to meet my savior, to meet my maker, what's the final text that I'd want to preach? And then broadening it out to everybody here this morning, and I recognize this is one of those unfair, impossible to answer questions, which is your favorite Bible verse type of questions. What is the last section of scripture you'd want to read before your eyes close? What is the last section of scripture you'd want to reflect on before passing on into the next world? What section of scripture would you want to be reading to your children or to your grandchildren as death's dew was beating on your forehead and as you were getting ready to to take your last breaths here on this planet? What would you want that text to be? Now, for me, I've had a hard time as I've reflected on this very question all week to select any passage other than the one that we'll be in today. If I'm days away, if I'm moments away, if I'm breaths away from meeting the one who purchased me, whose blood has washed me, whose sacrifice on the cross has saved me, I'm going with today's text, which is we're going to see helps us 
not so much to understand what Jesus Christ has done. There are plenty of passages all over the New Testament to explain that, including the one we were in last week when we saw that it's in him we have redemption and forgiveness of sin. No, our text helps us better understand who Jesus Christ is. Turn with me in your Bibles, if you would, to Colossians chapter 1. And this morning, we're going to be in verses 15 through 18. Colossians 1, 15 through 18. God's word reads, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. Whenever I stand up here to preach, there is a natural sense of intimidation, not because of the lights and not even because of all of you, but because of the task that God has given me to bring forth the treasures of his word and show it, unfurl it for all of you so that you can rightly understand its meaning and then apply it to your lives. See, the task of preaching in and of itself is an intimidating task. And while all scripture is God-breathed and all scripture is profitable and all scripture is preachable, there are just some passages that you run across as a preacher and you find yourself completely astonished and completely overwhelmed and completely insufficient. And you find yourself like Paul in 2 Corinthians 2.16 saying, who is adequate for these things? I felt that way all week. Astonished, overwhelmed, inadequate which is really where any preacher ought to be every Sunday morning. It's another topic. But in his kindness, in the face of this magnificent and this daunting text, God has given us some markers, some grammatical handlebars to grab onto as we work our way through today's text, as we try our best to work our way through it faithfully. See, our text really marks a transition in Paul's flow of thought in the book of Colossians as a whole. In the first 14 verses of of chapter 1, which we've looked at in the first four sermons in this series, Paul has been expressing his thanksgiving for the Colossians. He's been describing his prayers and petitions for the Colossians. Prayers and petitions he was offering up to God the Father, as we saw last week, who had qualified the Colossians to share in the inheritance of the saints in light, verse 12. The God who had rescued the Colossians from the domain of darkness, verse 13. And the God who had transferred the Colossians and all of us to the kingdom of his beloved son. But now, as he moves to verse 15, Paul swings the door open to the, really the main emphasis and focus and theme of this entire letter, which is the preeminence of Jesus Christ. And as Paul transitions here to this central theme of the preeminence of Christ, as he pivots to describing what Christ has already done for us to who he is in his essence, He hangs his thoughts like like pins on a clothesline is the way I think of it on the same two words. He is. He is. You know, to the Pharisees of his day, Jesus affirmed his deity before them in John 8, 58 with the words, I am. And now what we have Paul doing to the Colossians of his day and by extension to the church of our day, he's building on what the Lord has revealed about himself when he said, I am. By saying, he is. To the church there at Colossae, this young church that was being threatened with this false and heretical picture of Christ. We're going to get more into that in Colossians 2. Paul here in our text for today describes Christ for who he is. And that's the title of the message this morning, he is. Because in our time together, we're going to work through these four majestic and transcendent verses. Verses which one commentator says there was never a higher Christology. And what we're going to do is work through these verses through the lens of those four he is statements. Let's jump right into it as we come upon our first he is statement at the beginning of verse 15. Colossians 1.15 says he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. 
So right away, we have to ask the question, who is he referring to here? Who is the he of verse 15? Well, the he is the beloved son mentioned back in verse 13. He is the one, as we saw back in verse 14, is the one through whom we have redemption and forgiveness of sins. That's a reference, of course, to the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph and Mary, the Galilean, the the long-awaited and foretold Messiah of Israel, the one who died on a Roman cross, the one whose lifeless body was placed in a sealed tomb, the one who eventually rose from the grave. That man, Jesus, the God-man, is described by spirit-led Paul here as the image of the invisible God. We got to take this one bite at a time, starting with the reality that that we, like Paul, like the Colossians, worship a God who is, as this text tells us, invisible. The God of the Bible, whose name is Yahweh, who as Christians, we have the privilege of calling him father. He's invisible. John 4.24 says, God is spirit. And as such, he, he cannot be seen. Here in our text, he's called the invisible God. He is, as Paul would say elsewhere in 1 Timothy 6, 15 and 16, the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see. And that word invisible shows up in a few other places in scripture in reference to God. For instance, uh, Romans 1, 20 says, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen. What an interesting turn of phrase there. The invisible God is clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they, meaning the unbeliever, are without excuse. Or Hebrews 11.27, in the hall of faith, describing Moses, it says, by faith, he left Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is unseen. Or First Timothy 1.17 says, Now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Now, contrast the invisibility of the true God with all the false gods of the world. Whether that be Brahma of the Hindu religion or Buddha or the countless other deities whose likenesses have been carved into tree trunks or painted in caves over the centuries. For those so-called gods who are, are fabricated and made in the, in the image of, of sinful humans, they are totally visible and creaturely and observable. They have mouths and eyes and noses and hands and feet. It reminds us of Psalm 115. 5 through 7, which says the following about false gods and idols. It says, they have mouths, but they cannot speak. They have eyes, but they cannot hear. They have noses, but they cannot smell. They have hands, but they cannot feel. They have feet, but they cannot walk. They cannot make a sound with their throat. And then that same psalmist concludes, those who make them will become like them, everyone who trusts in them. And we see this phenomenon. Men bowing down to deaf and dumb and worthless idols, not just in the Old Testament in Psalm 115, but in the New. Romans 1, again, speaking of the unbeliever, verses 22 and 23 says, professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and of four-footed animals and crawling creatures. And then in our context, in our day, in our post-Christian, hyper-educated, I-know-better-than-you society, we're going to encounter atheists who will, with a wry smile, ground their opposition to the God that they say is not there or their indifference to the God they don't believe in in the fact that he cannot be seen. They'll say things like, why do you worship a sky fairy that you can't even see? How can you know that a God that cannot be seen can actually be known? How can you know that a God you cannot see is actually there? Well, if you find yourself interacting with such a scoffer, there there are many ways you can go with that. But you can actually answer them with the words of Jesus himself, who during his earthly ministry said things like this in John 14, 9, he who has seen me has seen the Father. Those words, bringing it back to Colossians 1, testify to the fact that Jesus is a visible representation of, of God. 
And now we have Paul here in Colossians 1.15 referring to Christ as the image of God. That word for image is icon. It's a word, a Greek term from which we get our English word icon, and it means copy or likeness, which fits perfectly here. Because what Paul is saying here in Colossians 1.15 is that Jesus is the perfect image, the exact likeness of God himself. Jesus is essentially and, and absolutely the perfect expression and representation of God the Father. As it's put by the author of Hebrews in Hebrews 1.3, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he has been so, friends, since eternity past. You know, Jesus's likeness to God the Father is not something that he took on at the incarnation. It's not limited to his earthly ministry. There was no point, going back to eternity past, that Jesus was not in the image of the invisible God. He has eternally and forever been so. And Christ not only bears likeness to God, it's not like it's some dim likeness to God, like a coin that has the head of a king or a president on it or one of your children who bears some degree of likeness to you. No, Christ is the very representation and manifestation of God, a perfectly visible expression of God, bearing perfect resemblance to God. Now, this idea of Christ being the image of God has some really deep theological, biblical roots to it, right? We know from the first chapter of the Bible that Adam was made in the image and likeness of God. Genesis 1.26 says, then God said, let us make man in our image. And we know also that as sons and daughters of Adam, we have been created in the image of God. Colossians 3.9 and 10 says that we are being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. Or James 3.9, that infamous passage relating to the tongue, says with it, meaning the tongue, We bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse men who have been made in the likeness, image of God. So we are made in the image of God, but here's the pivot point, the transition point, and that distinguishing point. Christ is the image of God. 2 Corinthians 4, 3 says, and even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So humans, we bear the image of God in some finite and imperfect way, but Christ is the perfect, infinite image of God. And as his perfect, infinite image, Christ brings clarity to any hazy notions we might have or entertain about this immortal, invisible God who dwells in unapproachable light. So in one sense, we can say that we as humans are in the image of the invisible God. We're all made in God's image. But Colossians 1.15 is saying that Christ is the image of God, is the image of God in a distinctive way. So if we could put a bow on this thought, it's not simply that Jesus taught about God. It's not simply that Jesus was an ambassador for God. It's not that Jesus was similar to God. No, he was and is the image, the visible, tangible representation of God himself, the exact representation of his nature. Bringing it back to the Colossian context, as Paul's writing this Colossian church, This church, you'll recall, that was staring down the threat of this new heretical teaching, this Christ plus form of theology, this Christ plus form of worship, Christ plus angels, or Christ plus philosophy, or or Christ plus asceticism. Paul redirects them here with this transcendent truth, which is that the Christ that they worshipped, the Christ that they'd been taught about by Epaphras, was all the Christ they needed. A Christ who is more than a good man, more than a a great teacher, more than a compelling miracle worker. Rather, he is the image of the invisible God, an exact visible representation of God, and in fact, God himself. Now, as verse 15 continues, Paul pivots and says here that Christ, in addition to being the image of the invisible God, is also the firstborn of all creation. Christ is the firstborn, the the prototakos, of all creation. What are we to make of that? 
Well, let's start by handling this term, firstborn. That term, firstborn, is used in at least three different senses in Scripture. First, you'll see it used in a very literal sense, like in the description of the birth of Jesus. Luke 2, 7, it says that Mary gave birth to her firstborn son. In that context, prototakos means the Lord Jesus was the first child to whom Mary gave birth. Not the only child, by the way. Tell that to your Roman Catholic friends. In other, term, in other settings, the word firstborn is used in a figurative sense. Like Exodus 4, 22. That's that scene where God is speaking to Moses about the coming exodus out of Egypt. And God says to Moses, then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. Now there, there's no sense of any actual birth taking place as with Mary giving birth to Jesus. Instead, the Lord uses the word firstborn there to describe the distinctive plans and purposes and role that he has for Israel. Then there's this third way that the term firstborn is used in scripture, and that's to designate one's place of superiority or supremacy or uniqueness. In fact, flip with me over to um, Psalm 89, please, where we're going to see firstborn used in that sense of supremacy. Look at Psalm 89. Psalm 89 is a uh, psalm of, of Ethan the Ezraite. And just to show you what's going on here, this is a psalm pertaining to David, as in King David. And we see that in Psalm 89:20. Just to set the context here, look at verse 20 of Psalm 89. It says, I have found David my servant. With my holy oil, I have anointed him. So that's our, our context. David, the king in Old Testament Israel. Now jump down all the way to verse 27, where it says, I also shall make him my firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. Now we know that David was not the firstborn of Jesse. He, in fact, was the lastborn. But here, the word firstborn is being used to indicate supremacy, primacy, sovereignty, to make David, the king, the highest of the kings of the earth. That's the meaning of firstborn here. And going back to Colossians, it is in that sense, that third sense, that Paul is using that term when in Colossians 1.15 he says of the Lord Jesus, he is the firstborn of all creation. The Lord Jesus Christ, who was in the line of David, who was the promised Messiah from the seed of David, is God's unique son. That's the idea here in verse 15. And note that it's not just that he is the firstborn. It says he is the firstborn of all creation, which is a, a comparative expression to, to say he is firstborn as compared to all creation. He is supreme as compared to all creation. And what's been communicated here is that Christ reigns supreme over all the earth, over all his creation. The sense here is of priority of, of rank, of status, of position, when it says Christ is the firstborn of all creation. We're going to get into this in just a second, but far from undermining the reality that Jesus is God, this passage actually underscores and underlines the absolute sovereignty and supremacy of Jesus Christ. He, he is totally and absolutely sovereign over the skies that he formed, over the land masses he molded, over the, the species he developed. As Hebrews 1, 2 says, he is the heir of all things. He outranks everything, all people, everyone in the entire world he has made. Now, notwithstanding some of the baseline material that I've just laid out for you here, there have been over the centuries many false teachers and many false religions who have taken this verse and run with it to suggest that Christ is a created being and that Christ is not God. They'll point to this very verse, Colossians 1.15, as backup for their claim. They'll say things like, look, it's right there in the word. First born. Christ was born. Therefore, he is created. Now, they'll try to be nice and play nice. And they'll say, like, well, you know, he's still like of the highest rank and order of created things and created beings. Meaning he's entitled to our honor and, and special respect and reverence. But they will still insist that he was born 
And he was born as a created being, just like you and I are born as created beings. That he's not God. Here's the Watchtower Society, the Jehovah's Witnesses, how they take this passage. They say, since Jesus, as the firstborn of all creation, is a created person, he cannot be almighty God. The scriptures repeatedly portray him as in a position subordinate to God. In other words, the Jehovah's Witnesses are unapologetic about their Arianism, which as we're about to see, there's reason why we call groups like this false teachers and movements like this false religion. In fact, let's go through some of the reasons why firstborn, that term firstborn in verse 15, does not and cannot mean created. First, it's impossible for Christ to be both created and the creator of everything. If verse 15, as the Jehovah's Witnesses and other groups would have it, is saying that Christ is created, that firstborn means created, and then the next verse in verse 16, which we'll get to in a little bit, we're told that Christ is the creator. Well, what we have in our hands is a massive contradiction. A created thing cannot create itself. Creatures aren't self-created. They are created by and instead whatever created them. Well, recognizing their problem of inconsistency here, the Jehovah's Witnesses in the, in the Bible that they created have added the word other in very strategic places in the very text that we're in today. For instance, in verse 16, they'll say things like, they'll translate it, by means of him, all other things were created in the heavens and on the earth. Or also in verse 16, they'll say, all other things have been created through him and for him. So he can be, by using that word other, both the created, but also he just created other things. Real inconvenient problem for the Jehovah's Witnesses, though, is that in no Greek manuscript does that word other appear. They simply injected it. They added it. Their translation team added the word other to intentionally add to and twist the scriptures to suggest that Christ created all things after he himself was created. It doesn't work. It it simply linguistically does not work. Here's another reason why firstborn cannot mean created. We're told elsewhere in the scriptures that the firstborn son of God received worship from the angels. Hebrews 1.6, speaking of God the Father, says, when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, and let all the angels of God worship him. Well, creatures, we know from going back to the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, mere creatures are not to be worshipped. So if Christ is a creature a created being, well, then the angels shouldn't be worshiping him. It'd be a violation of the Ten Commandments. He'd be wrongly and idolatrously receiving worship from other created beings. And the angels would be wrong to worship him. We would be wrong to worship him. And taking it a few logical steps further, under the Mosaic law, the Jews were right to kill him. For he blasphemed by holding himself out to be God. Here's a third reason why firstborn cannot mean created. Verse 15, and that word there, firstborn, it doesn't stand in isolation with what's being said in this section of scripture as a whole. The point of this passage, verses 15 through 18, as we're going to see in its entirety, is to demonstrate Christ's preeminence over all things, which includes the fact, as we'll see in verse 16, that he is the creator of all. And includes the fact in verse 17 that he upholds and sustains all things. The context of this whole section very clearly is that Christ has priority and preeminence over his creation and superiority and supremacy over everything. Not that he's a created being. If Paul were suddenly in verse 15 to say he's a created being, he'd actually be agreeing with the very heresy he's trying to refute throughout this whole book. So for those reasons and for so many others that have been articulated by Bible expositors and commentators and theologians over the centuries, we affirm that what Paul here was saying when he said that Christ is the firstborn over all creation is not that Christ was created by God or that he is less in essence than God, quite the contrary. The word firstborn here instead is a statement about Christ's position of supremacy over his creation. It's a statement of his his rank of rulership and dominion. 
It's a statement of his deity and his preeminence. In fact, the false teachers like the Jehovah's Witnesses who have twisted firstborn to mean what they want it to mean would do well to read into the next verse. Look at verse 16. It says, for by him, all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. So here in verse 16, Christ's preeminence is expressed in terms of his relationship to creation, his rulership over creation. And you'll note that the way that this is done is through these three different prepositions that are being used here. It is by him, all things are created. Then it says later, all things have been created through him. And then last, it says all things have been created for him, by him, through him, for him. Each of those prepositions conveys a different thought, and we're going to interact with each of those prepositions and thoughts as we work our way through this verse. First is the statement here that for by him, all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. So by him, all things were created. When it says here that all things were created by him, that the idea is They were created through the the power that was innate to him, creative power that is sourced in him, creative power that is a part of his being. And then note the scope of his creative power. The, The scope of his creative power is referenced in these three different areas that we see laid out in the rest of verse 16. First, his creative power reaches to every locality. First, he says, all things in heaven and on earth. So Christ created all things in the heavens, meaning he created the stars and the the planets and the galaxies and the constellations and all other astronomical phenomena. He created all things. And then it says he created things both animate and inanimate here on earth. It says both in the heavens and on earth. So everything from the bright red feathers of the cardinal to the beak of the blue jay to the scales of the lizard to the gills of the fish to the peaks of the mountain to the texture of a limestone to the brilliance of a diamond, he created it all. Second, it says his creative power extends or reaches to all things visible and invisible there in verse 16. As we're going to see when we get to Colossians 2, the false teachers there in Colossae were promoting this false dualistic philosophy under which material things, things you can touch and taste and smell, things that are visible, to use the word here, were were considered innately evil. Whereas immaterial things, things invisible, were considered intrinsically good. Paul is collapsing these two ideas in together and he's saying Christ created all of it. He created all the things we can see and he created all the things we cannot see. He created the pine tree, but he also created that unmistakable sense that the pine tree gives off. He created the person, but he just as readily created the conscience that resides within that person. He created the planet we live on materially, just as much as he creates the seasons or has created the seasons of summer and winter and seasons of cold and darkness and seasons of warmth and light. He's created it all, visible, invisible, all of it. Third, his creative power, it says, incorporates thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities. Now, on first read, we look at that and we're thinking that must be a reference to kings and and kingdoms and political and geographical boundaries. Like like it says in Proverbs 21.1, that the king's heart is like channels in the hands of the Lord and he turns it whatever way he wishes. But in context, that's not what's in view here. See, each of these four classifications, thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities, they're all used elsewhere in the scriptures to describe the realm of angels, the angelic realm. You could jot down Ephesians 1, 20 and 21 says, when he raised him from the dead, speaking of Christ, of course, and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. Or Ephesians 3.10 speaks of, the manifold wisdom of God that might now be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Or Colossians 2.15 says, when he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. And then here, 
In Colossians 1.16, Paul refers to thrones and dominions and rulers and authorities. And I'm telling you right now that those are referring to angels. We know from Colossians 2, which we'll get to in I don't know when, that the false teachers that had started to infiltrate Colossae there, they were promoting the worship of angels as a part of their heretical teaching. And Paul is outright rejecting those beliefs and practices here. And also in Colossians 2.18. In fact, turn with me over to Colossians 2.18 where we're going to see this angel worship component of the Colossian heresy and how Paul here already is speaking against that. Look at Colossians 2.18. It says, let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of the angels, taking his stand on visions he has seen, inflated without cause by his fleshly mind and not holding fast to the head from whom the entire body being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments grows with a growth which is from God. But there you see it. There's worship of angels making up this Colossian heresy. Going back to Colossians 1, Paul is making it clear here in verse 16 that, that angels, whatever their rank, whether holy or fallen, whether thrones, dominion, rulers, or, or authorities, they're all mere creatures. And their creator and ruler is none other than the preeminent one, the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, he's getting out in front of this heresy and he's saying to the Colossians here, essentially, why would you be worshiping angels when the one you ought to be worshiping is the one who created those angels, Christ himself? So we've seen that by him, all things were created. As we look at toward the end of verse 16, it also says all things have been created through him. That speaks of Christ being the divine agent in creation. In other words, Christ is the person of the Godhead through whom God's creative acts were performed. Of course, God the Father is the creator. In the beginning, God, Genesis 1-1, created the heavens and the earth. Or as I read this morning, Psalm 33, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. That's Yahweh. But the three persons of the Trinity participated actively together in the works of creation. Genesis 1-2 says that it was the spirit of God hovering over the surface of the waters at the beginning of creation. John 1-3 says all things came into being through him, Jesus Christ. That's a reference to Christ. And apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Or Hebrews 1-2 says in these last days, he, meaning God the Father, has spoken to us in his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom... Also, he made the world. In other words, in the act of creation, God did not act apart from Christ. Rather, it was through Christ that God performed his various creative acts. The son was was the master workman in creation. Christ was the agent through whom God accomplished his creative acts. And that leaves, the point is, no wiggle room for Anyone, whether it be the old purveyors of this Colossian heresy or the Arians of the fourth century or the Jehovah's Witnesses today to suggest that although Christ created some things, that he himself was created originally. The one who is firstborn over all creation is most certainly not a creature. Instead, as we see here, he is the very creator. And then at the end of verse 16, we're told that all things were created for him. He's the one for whom all things were created, meaning the purpose and the goal of all things in creation lies in their relation to him, to Christ. They're literally for him, unto him it could be translated. We need to think of the profundity of that statement that's being made there, that all things are for him. We have to remember that as Paul wrote these words, guided by the Holy Spirit, he is speaking of the one who not too long ago, from his calendar standpoint, had been executed in Jerusalem. The one who had risen from the dead. The one who appeared to Paul when he was still Saul on the road to Damascus. And here he is, Paul is saying, all things were created by him. And all things were created through him. And all things were created for him. And all things have their origin and existence and purpose in him. And all things center on and depend upon him. See, people today should be praising Jesus Christ when they view anything out there in creation. Whether it be six feet in front of us 
or the minute complexities of life as seen through a microscope or when it's looking out into the galaxies through a telescope. Glory should be attributed to him, not to the angels, not to mother nature, not to some atheistic principle of evolution. No, it's all, as this text says, by him and through him and for him. That sounds very much like the doxology at the end of Romans 11, where Paul says, for from him and through him and to him are all things, to him be the glory forever, amen. See, one of the reasons I was so excited to, but also terrified about preaching this text is it speaks, it rubs right against our natural tendency, even as believers, which is to compartmentalize Christ. You know, for part of our lives, we think of Christ as Christmas Jesus, the one who was crying and cooing in the manger there in Bethlehem. And then for part of our lives, we think of him as carpenter Jesus, the son of Joseph and Mary, building furniture, never talking back to his parents, the one who grew in wisdom and stature and favor, both with God and with man. And then for part of our lives, we think of him as crucified Jesus, the one who bore the punishment for our sins and the stripes that were laid across his back and took the crown of thorns upon his head and fulfilled the the father's perfect plan by offering salvation for those who would believe in him. Or then we put him in the category of the comforting Jesus, the one whose promises we look to for hope and support, the one we look to in prayer, the one we cry out to, the one through whom we find kinship with others who have believed in his name. And it's well and good to do all of that, to understand and to believe in the Christmas Jesus and the carpenter Jesus and the crucified Jesus and the comforting Jesus because he is each of those things. But standing behind it all, and this is what I want us all to latch onto, is this transcendent truth, which we've already seen here this morning, that the Jesus of the Bible, that Jesus of Nazareth, is the eternal son of God, that the second person of the Trinity, the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, the creator, and all things were created by him, and all things were created through him, and all things were created for him. With that, we turn to our second he is statement. Look at Colossians 1.17. It says, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. See, Christ is not only the one through whom all things came to be, he is also the one through whom all things continue to be, continue to exist. Verse 17 begins by indicating for us that Christ is before all things. Notice he is before all things, not he was before all things. Is there is a present tense verb. He is before all things. It, it speaks of continuation of his being. And the significance of that, of what's being conveyed here, is the timelessness of Christ's deity. Again, we go back to John eight fifty eight when, when Jesus is standing before the Pharisees. And remember, he says, before Abraham was, I was. That's not how it went, right? No, he said, before Abraham was, I am. Present tense verb, indicating the timelessness of his deity. Similar concept here with Paul saying, he is before all things. It's a present tense statement. But Christ was not only before Abraham, though. Here it says he's before all things, including creation. Jesus Christ, being eternal, existed before there was any creation to speak of. John 1, 1 and 2 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Now, while the universe has a beginning, even the atheistic Big Bang people would believe that, Christ has always existed. While the universe is temporal with a definite start date and with a definite one day end date, Christ is not. He cannot be confined to our calendars. He is eternal. Micah 5.2, it's a prophetic passage relating to Christ's first coming, speaking of him being from Bethlehem, says his goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. Or Christ himself would say in Revelation 22, 13, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Not only, though, did the Lord Jesus exist before there was any creation, 
we also see here that it's in him that all things consist. Look at the second half of verse 17. And in him, all things hold together. That means that the Lord Jesus is the sustainer of the universe, the source of its perpetual motion. He maintains just the right amount of power and balance needed to ensure life's existence and continuity. He upholds Hebrews 1.3, all things by the word of his power. The only reason that this planet hasn't exploded or imploded or dissolved, the only reason our whole galaxy hasn't just been dumped into a black hole somewhere is because of Christ. He's upholding everything right now. He's keeping the planets spinning. He's keeping the stars burning. He's keeping the ocean waters from flooding. He's keeping the rain cycles going. He's keeping our hearts beating. He's providing brain activity to every single one of us here this morning. And not just to us, to those out in the world who in foolishness reject him. He's giving life and breath and movement and existence to those who vehemently oppose and hate him. That includes the Illuminati on the college campuses who think that all of life's problems that can be solved by more learning or knowledge or reason. That includes the atheistic legislators in our state and other states who are making it their life's quest to allow mothers to slaughter their children in the womb at an earlier and earlier period of their pregnancy. That includes the Subaru-driving peaceniks who say that we just need to coexist. And that includes the worshipers of the modern-day rainbow cult. He's upholding all of them. He's allowing them to move and breathe. He's allowing them to suck in his air and drink his water and feel the warm rays of his sun. And he's doing so with patience and forbearance. 2 Peter 3, 9, not wishing that any would perish, but that all would come to repentance. Christ is governing and ruling and upholding all of it and all of them, those those individuals. He didn't wind up the universe like a clock and then walk away from it. Not at all, no. He continues to sustain it all. His power upholds and guides what his hands have formed. You know the old song? Maybe it's still a current song. He's got the whole world in his hands. That's true. Harry Ironside wrote this. He said, it is his hand that holds the stars in their courses, directs the planets in their orbits, and controls the law of the universe. How great is his dignity, and yet how low did he stoop for our salvation? And that final sentence about how low did he stoop, Philippians 2, for our salvation, is so important because it highlights the fact that the one who has formed every atom every molecule, every dust particle, the one who was intimately involved in every aspect of his creation, the one of whom it is said creation was accomplished by him and through him and for him is the same one who took nails in his hands and in his feet, who took a spear in his side and who died a humiliating criminal's death so that unworthy sinners like you and me could be restored to fellowship and relationship with a thrice holy God. Well, as we turn to verse 18, we get to our third he is statement. Look at verse 18, the first few words there. He is also head of the body, the church. As we pause there, just reading those words ought to give us at least some sense of shock. Not because the words themselves are shocking or scandalous or outrageous, but because of the sudden shift in focus from all the things we've been considering in verses 15, 16, and 17. It's like with whiplash effect here, Paul goes from this discussion of of Christ being the eternal image of the invisible God and the firstborn of all creation and the creator of all things and all things have been created by him and through him and for him. And now it says, oh yeah, he's also the head of the body, the church. Now, as this section of Colossians 1 is taking off, as he's powerfully stacking these thoughts one after the other on top of each other, we would expect that Paul here would say something like Christ is the supreme ruler of the universe or the the king of the cosmos. But that's not what we see. Instead, we see what we see here. Verse 18, he is also the head of the body, the church. Now, the references to the body here, the church here, those are references to the universal church. That is all around the world who have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation from the day of Pentecost all the way up to the rapture. 
And this organism, this assembly of believers, which is expressed in local assemblies like what we're doing today, it's that assembly over which Christ is, look at the word there, he's the head. Now, a few key details and for many of us reminders about this thing called the church over which Christ is the head. First, the church is described in this way in 1 Corinthians 12, that all believers are baptized into it. We're baptized into this body, the church, by the Holy Spirit the moment we believe in Christ. 1 Corinthians 12, 13 says, for by one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, placed into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. Another reminder about the church is that it is an especially diverse body and always has been in which there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, Galatians 3.28. Third, the, the church is a mystery, not made known to previous generations. In fact, drop down to Colossians 1.25. Just a few verses down, it says, Of this church I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit, so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. That is the mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations, but has now been manifested to his saints, to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So the church is a mystery revealed in these times to the Gentiles. Fourth, as we're seeing from our passage, verse 18, the head of the church is the Lord Jesus Christ. Ephesians 1, and 23 says, he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. Or Ephesians 5, 23 says, for the husband is the head of the wife as Christ also is the head of the church. So the dominion then of the Lord Jesus Christ extends not only through the natural universe, but it extends to the spiritual realm. He is ruler simultaneously of the cosmos as he is the head of the church. Now, how are we to take that in terms of how this passage, verse 18, ties into what we've just looked at in verses 15 through 17, where we see these sweeping claims about Christ's rulership over all creation? Does what he's saying now in verse 18 somehow lessen what has already been said? Is this making Christ smaller by, by localizing him in the church? Not at all. If anything, what this passage does, verse 18, when we consider it in conjunction with verses 15 through 17, is really expand the significance of the claims that are being made about Christ's role vis-a-vis the church. He is sovereign over creation, just as he is over the church. They go hand in hand. He is doubly preeminent, preeminent over all creation, but also preeminent in the church. And what that really ought to do for us who are the church is highlight the privilege that it is to be a part of God's family, to be a part of the church, to be a part of this family of redeemed people, to know that Christ is as intimately involved in in ruling and governing the church as he is in all of creation. The church is no side project for Jesus Christ. It's no plan B for Jesus Christ. He loves the church so much that he gave himself for the church. He's building the church. He's protecting the church and will pull the church out of the coming tribulation to come. And he's going to return and reign with the church. See, the church is not a place. It's not an address. It's not a thing we do or a place we go. It's the body of Christ with Christ as its head. And as his act of love for the church, he exercises control over it and direction over it, conforming each one of its limbs and organs, that's you and me, into his image. All right, that brings us to our fourth he is statement, which comes at the end of verse 18. And he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. Now that word that you see there where it says he is the beginning, it can actually be translated either beginning or rulership or rule, beginning or rule. You see it here as beginning. We see it in Matthew 19, verse 4 is beginning, where it says, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning created them male and female? But the same word here for beginning can also be translated rule or ruler in other places. So which is it? Is Christ here being described as the beginning 
Or is he being described as ruling? And the answer is yes. I think there's a trace of truth to both definitions. Christ, the preeminent Christ, not only created everything that we see around us in the cosmos, he, he also established his church. And in that sense, he is the beginning of both. But at the same time, he is ruler, as we've seen, both of the cosmos and of the church. He's the head of, of both realms. Now we see in this language, as we keep moving on, that Christ is the firstborn from the dead. That's a clear resurrection reference when it mentions from the dead. But what about that word firstborn? We've encountered it already in verse 15, but how about here? Is this a a matter of laying out a timeline? Is this saying that Christ is the first person to have ever been raised from the dead? Definitely not that. We know that Jesus was not the first to be raised from the dead. We know that Elijah raised the widow's son. We know that Jesus himself raised Jairus' daughter. We know that Jesus himself raised Lazarus. So then what does firstborn from the dead mean here? It means firstborn here is that of all those who have been raised from the dead, the Lord Jesus Christ ranks first in importance among them. He was the first to rise in an immortal body. First Corinthians fifteen twenty says, but now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. His resurrection marked triumph over death the way other resurrections didn't. Hebrews 2.15 says, through death, he might render powerless him who had the power of death. It's by virtue of Christ's resurrection that he's been elevated to a rank and a position higher than anyone else who rose from the dead. Romans 1.4 says he was declared the son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. Philippians 2.9 says God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name above every name. And it's only through Christ's resurrection that the future resurrection of others is secured. John 5, 28 says, do not marvel at this for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs who will hear his voice and will come forth. Those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life, those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. And all of this is so that he might be known, Christ might be known and as seen as preeminent in all things. So that, as we see at the end of verse 18 here, he himself will come to have first place in everything, preeminence. Alfred Mace once wrote this, an old evangelist from the early 1900s. He said, Christ cannot be second anywhere. He is the firstborn of every creature because he has created everything. He's also the firstborn from the dead in connection with a redeemed and heavenly family. Thus, creation and redemption hand the honors of supremacy to him because of who he is and what he has done. He is first everywhere. He's not second anywhere, but he's first everywhere. And that's exactly right. And what an answer that would have been to those who in Paul's day were trying to bring Christ down a few pegs as though they could. To strip him of his preeminence as though they could, as they promoted their heretical teachings there in Colossae. To those who would present such a false Christ, a weakened Christ, a a cheap Christ, Paul here says no. Christ is preeminent. He is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn of all creation. He is the creator of all things. All things were created through him and by him and for him. He's the sustainer of all things. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginner. He is the firstborn of the dead. And he is, as we see at the end of verse 18 here, to have first place in everything. All right, we've considered here in these verses the, the extent and the scope of Christ's preeminence in the creation and in the church. And now we need to ask ourselves as we get ready to head out of this place. Does Christ have preeminence in my life? That's the natural outworking, the natural question we have to ask ourselves as we take in these truths. Does does Christ have preeminence in my life? Or are there other things, business, family, football, fishing, hunting, hobbies, lusts, laziness that are crowding him out? As you leave here this morning, ask yourself sincerely, Am I so stuck in my own little world, my own little fishbowl, my own little bubble that I fail to bow my knee daily to the one who created the world and sustains the world? Do I have such a a slender view of the church 
as being a place full of programs and, and rhythms and people I've been around my whole life that I fail to acknowledge daily that it's the Lord Jesus who governs and reigns in his church? Am I allowing in what I read or what I watch or who I associate with influences in my life that would take away from Christ's preeminence over my life, or at least my recognition of his preeminence over my life? It's surely through his death and resurrection that we have been saved. And we praise him for that. But the Christian life doesn't end there. It really starts there. And it demands, once we acknowledge his death and resurrection, that we live in light of his preeminence. Let's pray. God, thank you for the treasures that we've been able to mine out of your word this morning. Thank you that the, the Christ we worship is this preeminent Christ the beginning of all things, the firstborn of all creation, the image of the invisible God, the one who receives and is due first place in everything. As we leave here this morning, I pray that we would not take these truths and simply allow them to go in one ear and out the other. To think of this church as a place of of mere learning or academic growth, as a place where we grab four thoughts about your word and, and, and refuse or fail to put them into practice in our lives. God, I pray that as we would leave this place, we would be transformed by the power of your spirit as we consider the the preeminent Christ who has saved us, the preeminent Christ who created everything, the preeminent Christ who we live for. God, I thank you for this day. Thank you for these dear people. We thank you for the preciousness of your word. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.